Good morning, church. My name is Shelly McCullough, um, and I am part of the Griotown community group. I think we changed our name. Um, and the scripture today comes from Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. So if you join me in your bulletin. One of the Pharisees asked, him to, asked to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering him, said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church. And um, we've been in a sermon series um, entitled Graceful, or Graceful, and um, we continue in this sermon series with this week's focus being repentance, repentance. The gift and call given by God for his children to do three things I want us to see from our passage today. First, to relinquish our righteousness. Secondly, to rest in his righteousness. And finally, to remain in our righteous standing. Relinquish our righteousness. Rest in his righteousness and remain in our righteous standing. To, as our title suggests, to leave it behind and live ahead by the grace of God. I've preached this passage before on a number of occasions, and it's one of the most moving and vivid displays of repentance, of thanks to Jesus from broken people like you and me. 
There's no clear picture, clearer picture rather, of living life like a repentant son of God as this daughter of God does here. We see her first relinquish her righteousness. And I say righteousness and not unrighteousness, though it could fit, because I was reminded recently by a sermon I heard that biblical gospel righteousness and unrighteousness is secondarily about morals and behavior and primarily about being in right or not right relationship. Righteousness is being square, if you will, with someone, being plumb-lined in your standing with a particular person or people or relational decorum, right, a way you're supposed to act. Righteousness is about being accepted and acceptable and received and embraced to be in, right, to be united, to be connected. See, it is our relationship with God that drives the behavior and actions and not the other way around. And so this woman was a sinner because, you know, her sense of righteousness, her connection and acceptance were outside of right relationship with God. Verses 37 and 39 say this about this woman. And behold, it says, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, because they'd sit at the table, and it's on the ground, uh, really uh, Eastern style, and, and, and they would lean their elbows on the table, right? And then they would uh, kind of, uh, their legs would be uh, behind them. And so she came behind him, if you will, just, just to get a picture of it. She, came, standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee, Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, to himself, right? If this man were a prophet, prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. The Bible says she was a woman of the city, that she belonged to the city. She worked for the city. She worked according to the moral laws and ways and immoral laws and ways of the city. She was used and used others like a public servant for private desires to, and to call a woman a seminar, right? Commentaries have traditionally interpreted that a woman of the city who is a sinner is a woman who is a prostitute. But I look deeper and some people really take um, issue with that. She could possibly be a mistress, though not necessarily. Maybe she was an embezzler, a medical quack, uh, or what we've seen Jesus, uh, th there's a story of a woman that Jesus cast out many demons from. Maybe she was a demon-possessed fortune teller. 
But regardless, her sinfulness, her unrighteousness, her profession was infamous, right? It was righteous because she was a fit for an equally sinful city. She had a place in society, albeit off. She had a way to get by. She had made a living in the city. She got in where she could or thought she could fit in. The stories of, uh, of women in this time are often uh, you know, uh, marked with husbands leaving them behind for all kind of wrong reasons in a, in, a, in, a, in a world where women were not allowed to testify in court. I mean, th- th- she got in where she could fit in probably. She was right with the city, but not right with God and others. And coming in, she was giving up and giving over her righteousness, right? What she did and why she justified doing it, why it was unrighteous before the Lord, as wrong and broken as it may have been, she was giving up her greatest comfort, her greatest connection, her greatest lifeline. That's how sin works. If it doesn't feel like a lifeline to you, it's probably just some minor behavior thing. Look at what verse 36 to 39 says here again. Okay, I'm not going to read that again. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I am actually. So he's at the table. I'm at least read 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was Jesus, was reclining at table in Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of ointment and she anointed his feet with it, the Bible says. This perfume was valued according to cross-references and don't know if it was the same woman when we look at the cross-references, this woman, but as they describe this other woman or the same woman's ointment, right? We don't know if this Mary Magdalene, we're not sure, even though there's an assumption that this is who she is. But this perfume, right? is valued as much as one year's wages for her. This perfumed oil was the, okay, I'm not good at French, y'all, because I took Spanish. Eau de, oh, oh, okay, thank you. Thank you, oh, uh, just kidding, okay. <laughs> eau de parfum, right? Huh? Close enough, y'all get it. Versus the O de Tole. Mm-hmm. And y'all know about the difference. Because having shopped for fragrances for my wife, you look on the bottom, you look, it's the same thing. Why this one, 100, and this one, 75. Sir, the $100 one is the O de Parfum. <laughs> this is the O de Tole. Toilet, thank you. Why are you putting something called toilet on you? <laughs> An O de Parfum lasts longer. 
I'm, I'm just butchering the French. Just, I'm a, I'm a preacher, not a French person, okay? I, I don't know how to say it. I should have done my little, you know how you can go online and it says it for you? And I've done that a lot for sermons, right? Because as my shirt says, I'm, I'm Geechee Gullah, right? I, I, don't, I don't know how to say all these things. Okay. So the O de Tolle fades faster. And since the perfume is more intense than a toilet, it's a greater option for night wear, they say, right? And so it makes sense that this valuable fragrance was stored in an alabaster box or vial or container. Alabaster was, was chosen because this, this, this hard substance would hold the potency of the smell in and not, it be, not let it be lost to the elements. And, and it would have been capped off with a wax top possibly for safekeeping and opening and resealing. The Bible says she anointed Jesus' feet with this stuff. She broke the vial. But we miss the point if we think it was about the market value of the perfume, right? It was about its value to her. It was its value to her sense of acceptance and place and position and continuing in, in her way of life. This perfume covered, y'all, hear that? It covered, it excused her wrong, it, it made her acceptable in and to the city. It was acceptable, right? In her, it made her acceptable in her brokenness. It kept the broken broken by helping her continue in whatever she was doing in the night, in the dark, like a good perfume, right? While her life was faded and tainted by sin, she could smell like she was in the light. And if she was a prostitute, mistress, or scammer, this was her, a sinner's righteousness, a cover-up and payoff, an open door to keep going and being held in that lifestyle, in that degradation, in that spot, in her sinful way, even if it was lucrative. But her display of repentance was not just in losing a valuable resource, right? It was a signal the end of her lifestyle. Look at, if we look at verse 36 through 37, look, this word, this word right here. So let's start at 36. We've got a great story going here, right? One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Man, this is turning out pretty good. But the Bible says this, and what's that word? Behold. I'm going to stop right there. Behold. You know, you have to love the word behold. Because it usually marks the appearing of an angel or the Lord saying something. Behold, right? But you hate that word if you're having a high-end party or wedding or funeral. You don't want nobody beholding anywhere. <laughs> right? I mean, behold here is like some of us have experienced at weddings and funerals, as in, behold, unknown children or lovers showing up at the reading of the will. Behold. I've experienced it in my family. Behold. That man, my daddy. Right? That's the kind of behold we're talking about. Behold what you're doing here with her. Right? 
Behold, I'm really his wife, right? One of those, behold. Behold, right? A a parent opening a door to their teenager's room at the most awkward moment. Behold. Hi, mom. Hi, dad. This is finding what you don't want or being found when you don't want and finding out what and when you don't want. Here's the point. She came out of her rightful place and came out of it there. One thing, and this is what's so important, one thing that would keep a sinner, especially a woman, and especially if she was a prostitute, a mistress, that would keep the lifestyle going is to stay in the dark. When you hear on the news or one of these crime shows, right, about an escort service being busted by the police, what is the most valuable item? Not the women. The black book. The client guide. See, her place in this city, as it's described here, if she was shady, it thrived, right? It lived on, it survived on her anonymity, her being discreet, yet publicly known, right? The worst way an immoral woman in an honor-shame culture could put an end to her trade or craft or sinful ways is prove herself to be untrustworthy to the sinfulness. To be untrustworthy to the city, to the evil, to turn code on it, right? For her to come out like that would mean whoever was taking advantage of and whoever she was taking advantage of, right, could no longer trust her. She was bankrupting herself. She was resigning and relinquishing her place As a sinner in the city, in fact, she was safer not coming out than coming out in that culture back then. If you were doing shady business, your business is in deep trouble if it comes out into the light. Repentance. Like we see unapologetically exhibited in this woman's throwing and laying herself before Jesus in front of a whole room of critics is about taking all that made your broken life go, all that makes you happy, love that word, that might even give you value, that gives you acceptance and relief and you can use to get ahead, a comforting addiction, a personality lie. Everybody thinks you're this, but you're really like that. Taking your righteousness, right, and bankrupting it, relinquishing it, unmasking it, like the perfume, breaking it and opening the dark place where sin hides so that it loses its potency over you to make your life unusable, y'all, for anything that might give you righteousness that goes against the righteousness of God. Breaking open that, 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 that thing that, make, that makes you able to skate by and get by and, and stay anonymous and safe in, in your brokenness. To stand on, make, makes you safe in your brokenness, right? It makes you stand above or below criticism, but, but is unappealing and makes you not so beautiful to the Lord. Repentance means to leave that behind. To no longer be a trusted and reliable vehicle 
and vessel for that sin or that struggle or messed up relationship or being taken advantage of or used anymore, that you are capable of pouring it out until it loses its potency and its exposure and hold on you and your hold on it. It's ruining your perfume. It's taking the risk that who you are and what you really smell like is finally going to be revealed. And here's the irony of it all. Simon is the opposite of repentant behavior. And yet he's the good guy in the story, right? The one who has the name. We don't even know her name. All they know her as this sinful woman, right? But here's Simon, a Pharisee, a, a dignitary of morality and religion. Look at what Jesus says to him after Simon criticizes the interaction between Jesus and this woman in verse 44 through 46. It says here, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I've come in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Do you see the difference here? Simon, unlike this woman, holds onto his righteousness before the Lord. He holds his place and space. And I want to point this out because most of you in here are church people, right? In some very real ways, you and I are more like Simon in the story. I know I am, right? And, but he refuses, right? He, he lives unrepentant as someone in the eyes of the city is not a sinner, right? He lives unrepentant in broad daylight while she was living unrepentant in the darkness. His eyes are wide shut to his brokenness and offensive righteousness to the Lord. Therefore, he does not, look what he does. He does not give Jesus what is most valuable to him, Simon his righteous position and judge over Jesus instead of follower and student. Do you see what he's doing? Hey, Jesus, come on, buddy. Come over to my house. We are righteous. I am righteous. Jesus, patting Jesus on the head. Aren't you glad to be in my house? He doesn't serve Jesus. That was Jesus' point. You didn't do anything that would tell all your friends and all your people in position, man, Simon is now a follower of Jesus. That Simon believes in Jesus more than he believes in himself. That Simon is willing to give up being on the Pharisaical council because he's wanting to follow Jesus. Simon is willing to call his life unrighteous. Thus, he does not give Jesus a kiss. Do you know what a kiss would mean? He doesn't give him a hug. 
He doesn't give him a foot washing. He, he doesn't give him a bent and broken and humbled heart. Simon holds his moralism and legalism and rugged hatred of other people for what he considers to be for the good of the culture and society to stay who he is and where he is. This woman has given up using people. And yet Simon, obvious from the way he fails to welcome Jesus, is using Jesus for his righteous self-righteous purposes. Jesus' place in Simon's life is to increase his righteousness, not to relinquish it. Have we broken it? Whether Simon or this woman, whether we feel either way in this story, Have we broken the alabaster flask in our lives? Have we exposed it? Our sordid and self-lifting, arrogant lifestyle, either one. Have we ruined the potency of sin and self-righteousness and Satan and the world's ability to use and stay in the dark and prostitute us? Have we taken what is most valuable and desperate about ourselves, but an offensive wall to Jesus move in advance of grace on your life? Have we turned from it, resigned from its service, smashed it, turned, torn off in a way? Because in repentance, regardless of whether you are on the rich end or the poor end, whether you live in the street or of the suburbs or the city come from a good, stable, godly home or for one of those single mother don't know your daddy profile spots. Whether you have been walking with the Lord and in the church for years or just walked in here this morning. Repentance looks the same. It looks like you have lost and lose everything for Jesus. It makes you think, who's repentant? When I look at churches, I think, does that look like the repentant group or the pharisaical Simons? Does it look like we've lost everything? That we've given up all our righteousness in this city that sin is growing in, right? That we're willing to give it all up, our place, our position, our privilege, (laughs) how great everybody thinks we are to finally say, no, I'm not. I'm desperate for Jesus. Everything that promotes and demotes you at the same time, excellence and failure, moral failures and moral success, whether it's living with someone you're not married to, hooking up or engaging in an affair, or on the other side, being a tyrannical, controlling, abusive, good provider, mother or husband or wife, right? Same thing. Whether you're doing it because you are in love or or, or no one understands it. I know that one. No one understands. I'm in such love, right? I'm not doing it because I'm sinful. I'm doing it because I'm in love. It smells so good. Oh, man, you too. What? Or is this just silent bitterness? between you and a spouse. Oh, plenty of married people silent and bitter. It must be deemed. Your self-justifying righteous called sin, it must be lost, it must be broken, it must be deemed as earning you nothing. 
and robbing you of knowing grace and peace because we are holding on to our comfort and our acceptance of what feels like a life raft and our emotional survival, and now it's holding you. It is getting rid of any righteousness that would stop you from resting alone in the righteousness of Jesus. Did you hear that? Contrary to popular belief, a moral instinct. I'm calling it moral instinct because I think we're all born with this moral instinct. But sometimes our moral instinct is exactly what it sounds like. It stink before God, right? <laughs> well, I'm going to go save the world and I'm going to be good. Moral instinct, right, is based on emotional and mental survival more than it is really glorifying who God is. You just survival. You know what it is? Someone who's just a moral person is a hustler, right? That's all it is. You're just hustling good. You ain't really changed deep by no relationship if you don't know Jesus. You're just hustling morality. Like the perfume, just putting it on stink. It don't work like that. God's calling us to rest. See, contrary to popular, again, moral instinct, repentance is not about wrangling or performing or scraping ourselves bloody for God to accept us. It's resting in Jesus' righteousness again and again and not your own. Look at verse 38 one more time. It says here, Okay, I can't read. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her, her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And then look at verse 50. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Rest in peace, when you say it, can sound like such inactive words. Almost sounds like lazy, just lays around, right? But when it comes to repentance, rest is actively, purposely, right? Falling. It is actively pushing in and risking and losing yourself in Christ. This woman, uh, this woman the Bible tells us, lets her hair down. And washes Jesus' feet with her tears in the presence of everyone. And it points to what someone back then would do only for a husband or conquering king. Her relinquishing display says this. I am yours and you are mine. My life is committed to you and I am your subject. I am one you must now care for, Lord. And when Jesus grants peace, he is saying, rest, daughter. In this fact, you are mine. And I am yours. Your life is mine. And my life and protection and name and relationship is yours. 
It's the stuff of a bride and groom and the dowry. The wedding gift is her righteousness, her sin, which is wrapped and stained with all kinds of mess. Many, Jesus says, she gives it all, but she gets to rest in his righteousness and decision and direction for her and no longer in her own. It is a picture of conquering love. This foot kissing and gift bringing is second only to what we saw recently at Christmas with the kings and wise men coming with gifts to say our kingdoms recognize your lordship. You are king of kings. You're king of our kingdoms. We are at peace with that. This woman is saying, take me. Take my brokenness. Take my kingdom. You have won me. You have conquered my righteousness with your own. But let's be honest here. Repentance like this is a real risk. Resting in someone, even Jesus, right? Someone else's righteousness is a real risk. Because repentance, you are giving and in the process of liquidating your greatest assets. Of opening your darkest closets to Jesus saying, look. Or because you can already see what's going on. You know, he tells Simon, I can see what you're thinking, right? So it is resting and relinquishing and inviting and being glad and actively accepting that Jesus is looking in to that closet, to that deepest, darkest thing in you. <laughs> to say, see, Lord, here is the thing I've been hoarding. Here is the thing I've been hiding. See, Lord, you can do with this what you wish. Here, Lord, here is my heart. Here's my life. Here's my soul. Here I am. And the risk and fear is that, guess what? Jesus would find something. And we would tell him something. Or he would discover something that is too much for him. Or that is too much for him to continue to love us. I know I'm like that. I might find something out about you and be disgusted to the point where I don't want to hang out with you no more. I know there's some things about me. You might be like, I don't want to hang out with Pastor Brown. Right? It's too much for him. He's not going to keep us. And my goodness, if the people of God find out, I'm really in trouble. If the Pharisees find out, I'm done. Jesus says, oh my God. No, oh me, right? <laughs> I've seen this before. You see, this woman was a sinner and what she was doing was, Lord, see me for who I am. I'm a woman who's made a living, perfuming herself to take advantage of and be taken advantage of. I am a liar. I am inauthentic. I let down my hair. For anyone who would give me what I need, this is me. I rest my case before you and in you. Simon couldn't take that risk. The Bible says Jesus answered. Look at this again. So after she does this, now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, verse 39, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, if Jesus knew what he was doing, right? If the creator of the universe and world knew what he was doing, right? Uh, was if he was a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who, is who is touching him for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, could you imagine? 
that's crazy. That's why I don't want Jesus hanging around. Like, part of me is glad he's ascended, right? Because if you were hanging around Jesus, imagine being at a party, right? And you hating bad on somebody. Howard? <laughs> Get out of my head, Jesus. Get out, right? So the Bible says he doesn't even question what you thinking, Simon. No, he answers them. Right? So the Bible says he answers. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. The Bible says when Jesus answers Simon, because Jesus saw Simon's thoughts, the question of Jesus, and when Jesus says, or anybody in the Bible says, I have something to tell you. That's the same thing as saying, I'm about to put you on blast. Right? Get ready. I'm about to tell you about yourself in front of everybody. You know what this righteous Simon does? Tell it. Tell it. Okay, I think it's good. Maybe Simon's repenting, y'all. But if Jesus says, Howard, in front of y'all, I got something to tell you. Not here, Lord. <laughs> Not here. Let's go upstairs. Let's go out back. He didn't give, it's funny. He didn't give Jesus permission to see him, but Jesus saw him. For us, Simon, sometimes, repentance comes because Jesus says, I have something to tell you. I have something to show you about you that you won't see. Your righteousness has failed you. Your kingdom has crumbled. You tried, but you can't live on your own, right? Rest your life. Simon, rest your mouth, right? My mom used to say, rest, rest yourself. Howard, rest yourself. <sighs> I'm done, right? That means sit down relinquish, stop, give up your plans, turn back, curve whatever's going on, right? Jesus was calling Simon's heart to rest. For us Pharisees, sometimes it requires Jesus saying, I got something to tell you. But it's grace for rest, but he couldn't see it. But where is the confidence and courage to rest or relinquish the best and worst about us that is unrighteous to him? Look at Jesus' story inside the story in verse 41 through 43. And a certain money lender had two debtor, debtors, verse 41. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? He asked Simon. Simon answers, right? The one I suppose, I suppose, <laughs> love that. I guess, Lord, right? The, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, Simon, you've judged rightly. Then jump down to verse 47. It says here, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. For he who is forgiven little loves little. It is clear that this is not this woman's first interaction with Jesus from this story to me. 
There is much debate on whether, again, this is Mary Magdalene and she is already following Jesus, right? And so when she anoints his body later, it's the same ointment that she used before that she opened. All kind of stuff I read. Or some second woman. I don't know. But it is clear, right, that she had somehow already received or known about the forgiveness of the Lord. That maybe he had already shown her mercy. Maybe this was a woman who, who had the demons cast out of her. I don't know. That she had already accepted the message of forgiveness of sins. Maybe she was out there in the crowd and she heard preaching. Maybe she was at the Sermon on the Mount or something and eating some fish and Jesus was teaching. He said, what? There's forgiveness for me, a poor person. Amen. Maybe she heard a friend, but she had already believed by her response that her sins, which are many, had been forgiven by Jesus. Jesus knows her, of course, but get this. Coming in and risking means and points to the fact that she knew him. She knew his forgiveness and power and his love. So she could come boldly. Why? Because she wasn't invited. Now, back then, gosh, okay, back then, right, they would have parties, right? And... (laughs) If the, they would have somebody at the door like a bouncer if it was a real private party, right? But sometimes in their arrogance, they would have a party and invite people to watch. Okay? Come on. Mm-hmm. Come on. Y'all all Instagram looking at the, what's going on? Kim Kardashian, what's she doing? Right? No. Y'all do the same thing with my, my favorite rapper, my favorite person, and you're looking at pictures of them, right? This is what's going on. They didn't have no phones back then. They didn't have no Facebook. They weren't following people in Twitter. So this was their Twitter, right? Hey, there's a party going on, and the Pharisees inviting Jesus, and we can go. Watch. That's how it continues. That's why later in Scripture, and I'm, I'm preaching too, this is going to make the sermon long, so cut this out at a time, all right? It's already long, but cut this out because this is free stuff, right? So <laughs> that's why later in the Bible, it talks about when you come together to eat a meal as the body of Christ, nobody should be watching, right? Everybody should eat. You shouldn't eat up all the food. And then sometimes they let the poor people come after that and, hey, y'all can have the scraps, Right? So people would come. So this woman, she, she comes in, but she doesn't just stand in the galley, right? Or, or she doesn't stand in the lobby room and watch. She doesn't stand behind the, the, the red rope and watch everybody walking on a red carpet. Ooh, who's this? Look at Jesus. Look at the Pharisee, right? She goes behind the red rope. What gave her that confidence? Knowing she would be rejected. Knowing that people would be like, that's it, you done. They might even stone her. Or you won't come out in the light, we're going to deal with you, right? We don't know. But she had the confidence because she looked at Jesus and said, that's my Lord. I'm his daughter. I can come. I'm willing to risk it. Because he's loved me already. He's already given me everything. I looked up the definition of the word penance. Penance without the R-E on the front, basically. 
Because I think we work in penance more than we do gospel biblical repentance. And Christians fall into the trap all the time, and they think they are repenting. Penance, the first definition of it, means to self-punish. And even in the Catholic sacrament of penance, there is a payment. Penance to be given. A self-imposed rudiment or punishment, like writing sentences over and over on the board. Repentance. Biblical repentance is being free of sin. Leaving behind, turning away from sin only because you agree and believe that Jesus has been punished for that sin. That he had the right to perfect sentences of a perfect life lived for us. That he had to suffer our detention to pay our penance. So we could turn and go and turn back with confidence and go to God as children, not beat ourselves up. This woman was not paying penance. She was not kissing feet to debase herself or to beg something of Jesus. Jesus debunks that from the story. She's expressing gratitude and resting and risking according to the penance he suffered. That he will suffer a damaged reputation so that she can come get a renewed one. That he would be seen like a false prophet and not in the know because he was He has chosen to know her, that the greater risk was his so that she could risk and rest in him. Repentance is not paying for forgiveness. It isn't suffering for your sins. Let me say this. Don't confuse the consequential bruises left behind by a lifestyle or self-righteousness, right? You know, being in sin or in bondage is like having shackles on your arms. And when you repent, you take the shackles off and there's bruising. But the bruising doesn't come from repentance. It's the consequential bruising of living a life outside of Christ. And we confuse that. Oh, if I repent, I'm going to pay the price. I say this because some of you see repentance as suffering for what you did or being tattled on or ratting out for something wrong. If you believe that, you're not repenting and will not have the confidence to do so. I'm going to tell you right now, it will feel like the greatest risk in your life to own your sin and turn away in fear that it might go south again. But the risk has been mitigated. You are free to confess and free to fail. Stop paying penance and repent. Stop waiting until you have enough fortitude to take the beating. Stop walking in pride and self-righteousness and fear that you will suffer more than you can bear. Don't you know Jesus has already suffered more than you couldn't bear, what you couldn't bear? And your shame and dishonor is his. And his honor and righteousness has become yours. Let me tell you, I say this in testimony time. 
as your pastor, as a preacher of this message, knowing that Jesus sees it all and has, and like Simon, can call me out, I still hold on to a lot. I'm afraid. There's so much I am glad, kind of in a sinister way, that comforts me. There are so many closets and dark spaces, right? That he sees and still loves me. But I don't love and trust him enough all the time to break open in his presence. I'm like you. So much shame I fear and live in and honor I want and hold on to that I've yet to break open, let down and let it go. Even though he's been good to me. Repentance is getting there and going there to relinquish and rest in Jesus. Now, I'm going to take an exegetical risk here. But I believe from other things I've read and what is clear here that this woman was already a converted believer who has come to give Jesus more of her broken life. She has already been justified in accepting who Jesus is, and now she's relinquishing her sin and lifestyle and, and saying, I rest in your righteous repenting. And so when he calls, when he says, your sins are forgiven, go in peace, it does what? It strengthens and affirms an ongoing relationship that she already has with Jesus. I wondered whether she believed and was forgiven the very first time, whether she told Jesus what she was all about. I don't know. Maybe she says, yeah, I follow Jesus, but she went back to that lifestyle. And this time, she brings it forward. What's interesting is Jesus is not ashamed of us. He's not shocked. He's not rejected, rejecting and dishonored. When he said, go in peace, do you see what happens in the story? The criticism stops being about her and it becomes him. Jesus is here to protect all the liars that say, you can't be forgiven. You still got stuff. You can't repent because you're not going to give it all. Jesus doesn't really love you. You can't go in peace for confessing your sin. Don't you know you're going to do it again? And this is why they look at Jesus. How in the world can you forgive sin of someone who's such a life sinner? Repentance is less about not losing Jesus, but knowing He's already loved us with a perfect, fully accepted love. Which tells us this, repentance is the right and privilege of sons of God. Don't you know it's a gift for your taking? <laughs> I, uh, when I was in college, there was nothing like coming home from college. And still, I mean, no, I'm in college. Every time when I go back home to Charleston, I love it. Especially when my brothers are there, my dad is there. And Kelly has to remind me. I think I told y'all this. We, we'll get a few miles from Charleston and she can see me, right? And she's like, Howard, please don't turn 16 again. 
I need a husband. <laughs> and the boys are younger. I need you to help me with the kids. Because you and your brothers, all y'all going to do is sit around, tell the same stories <laughs> over and over. Laugh. Make bodily fluid jokes. I know it's going to be off the chain. You know, um, there's something about going home and, and, and to my brothers and especially my father, when I get in that setting, I just want to tell them everything. My brothers and I went on a 12-hour trip to New York to my uncle's funeral a few weeks ago. In that car, nothing was begging and pulling me, like being with them, right? To finally say, this is what I'm going through. This is, I wanted to open the dark places. Why? Because I wanted to feel them love me and accept me and know me at my darkest and in my worst. Repentance is confessing. It's a gift so that you can know God at your darkest and in your worst and to feel his embrace and love that keeps you going. That's repentance. To leave it behind and live ahead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of grace that repentance is. It helps us remain in you There's a lot here. I ask that you would encourage your people. Some of us, people can say, yeah, they sinners, they wrong, they bad. Lord, give us grace to know that if we're yours, you're not ashamed of us. Lord, and then there are those of us we get pat on the back because we're good. Help us to relinquish that good for your glory. I pray for those who don't know you, who thought, you know, if they come to Christ, it's going to be all shame and dishonor that Jesus is going to harm them or hurt them or the church is about harming and hurting and exposing and just stressing you. Lord, I pray that people would hear the message of rest in repentance. Lord, for those of us who continue to hold on to their comfort, hold on to our sin, I pray that your voice would powerfully say, I have something to tell you. <laughs> tell us, Lord. Continue to bring us there. Make us long for your embrace that comes and we can know better through repentance. This I ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen.